Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Euroactive debate on underlying analysis for EU legislation, where we're going to be asking how climate models are working to support the Commission's policy choices. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels, and I'm coming at you live from the Euroactive studios in the heart of the EU quarter, right next to the European Commission headquarters, Berlaymont, where these laws are crafted. Now, this is going to be an interesting one, because usually at Euroactive debates, we talk about legislation. But today, we're going to be talking about the preparatory work that happens before a legislative proposal is made. Now, EU law and practice mandate the use of impartial impact assessments to guide the formation of EU policies. They're supposed to synthesize the best available cost, technology, and scientific information. Now, this, of course, includes climate legislation, which is a big focus right now with the Fit for 55 package of proposals that just came out in July that are designed to get the EU's climate legislation more ambitious so that the EU can reach its newly revised target of a 55% emissions reduction by 2030. Now, at the heart of all climate-relevant impact assessments are model-based scenario quantification tools. The Price-Induced Market Equilibrium System, or PRIMES, is the Commission's modeling tool for the EU's Fit for 55 package. The Commission has relied on PRIMES for more than a decade as its primary modeling tool. When PRIMES first appeared, the Commission acknowledged the need for transparency in its use, but now some stakeholders argue that how the Commission uses PRIMES is unknown or unknowable to them because the modeling formula isn't disclosed. They also claim that the managers of PRIMES are forbidden from sharing details with public stakeholders. So the question we're going to be asking today is whether the modeling that's still being done is still fit for purpose now in 2021 and going forward. Does the Commission have a process to update information and assumptions and primes to keep pace with quick-moving developments in the real world? And crucially, is Prime still fulfilling its mission to guide policy decisions rather than being guided by preconceived policy decisions? All subjects we're going to be tackling today uh, in something that, while it may seem very technical, actually has a really, really big impact in what legislation we see proposed at EU level and, of course, what legislation impacts our daily lives. Now, you guys at home are going to be able to ask your questions to the panelists. Uh, you can do that by just typing your question there in the Slido uh, box, and I will see them come in as you ask them. You can go ahead and put questions in now. That way, I'll get a sense of what you guys are interested in talking about. I'll be posing those questions to the panelists toward the end of the panel. And of course, you can participate in the discussion online on Twitter using the hashtag there below me, EA Debates. Now, I'd like to introduce the panel. Uh, we would like to mention that Euractive invited several representatives from the different DGs at the European Commission, but none were available to participate at this event. But we do have uh, five, ex six excellent panelists here. So let me introduce them now. We have Danish center-right MEP Pernilla Weiss, member of the European Parliament's Industry and Environment Committees. We have Alessia De Vita, Director for Energy Analysis and Policy at E3 Modeling, who are the modelers behind Primes. Diana Susser, Research Associates research associate at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies. 
Robert Yeshka, Head of Strategy, Analysis, and Auction Unit at Kobize, which manages and administers EU laws in Poland, most notably the ETS, Luke Vernet, co-founder of the think tank Farm Europe, and Eric Sievers, Director of Investments at the Irish agribusiness group Clonbio. Pernilla, let's start with you. You, um, as part of the European Parliament, you received the legislation or the legislative proposals from the Commission after the impact assessments have already been conducted. So how do you assess the way that climate modeling and primes specifically is being used to shape EU lawmaking today? Hmm. Thank you for this very, very important question. And also very, thank you so much for this uh, event. It's uh, very, very timely, um, but also that maybe we should have have asked these questions a year ago, uh, also to pay inference uh, on the Commission's uh, uh, way of doing the impact assessment, because it is very true that uh, we rely uh, very much on the quality of the impact assessments that we as parliamentarians uh, often ask uh, to be done uh, before making uh, revisions of directions, uh, directives or uh, new legislation uh, that covers uh, all areas in, in, one, in one cut. So impact assessment and the methodology is very, very important. Um, uh, when that is said, uh, and, and we must not, um, in a world right now where fake news uh, is, is a part of the political reality, it's very, very important that the European Union really protects uh, the evidence-based uh, uh, data um, uh, management and also that there is a high level, uh, if not a 100% level of, of transparency of the methodology. And when it comes to, to, uh, to primes, uh, I've asked the people, also stakeholders, uh, that uh, um, also is very dependent on uh, the uh, the uh, the law and the quality of the directives that that we uh, uh, shape uh, in the European Parliament together with the Council, and they say especially to primes, and that is what raises some red flags for me as a parliamentarian. Whether it is time to either um, uh, redesign uh, primes in its uh, in its backstage, uh, or uh, ask for other tools to be uh, used when uh, doing impact assessments. Because what I hear is that primes is being perceived as a kind of a, not only not only perceived, but also that it actually works as a as a black box uh, that where you cannot. Uh, uh, calculate numbers uh, again uh, and run the same test and then get the same results and that is uh, worrying uh, because which uh, which version of a calculation in the primes can you then rely upon um, also we see and that is a, a has a special interest for me because I'm the shadow of EPP in the revision of the energy efficiency directive is that the Historically, the PRIMES model has underestimated the developments in renewable energy and uh, criticized, uh, PRIMES is criticized for making energy efficiency unnaturally uh, expensive uh, in the calculations assumptions. So it's very timely and it's very needed to have a, a critical debate uh, on the tools behind and the methodology behind uh, the impact assessments, especially when we are making this uh, big 
a societal change uh, of making the union uh, CO2 neutral by latest uh, 2050. It will impact all levels of, of society and what we need to make this change, both as citizens and especially SMEs of all kinds of sizes, is that we can rely upon that the data behind the, the analysis and the assessment of how to make a sustainable, uh, coherent uh, change, that we do the optimum uh, and that we can also count on the impact assessment uh, that they are of high quality and hopefully also made in a methodology um, that also can be used in our uh, international uh, cooperation, uh, EU, uh, with uh, the rest of, of, of the globe in the way where EU stands out as a role model where the impact assessments and the way we work with data also influences and inspires uh, uh, others, other continents, other uh, of the big uh, polluters uh, uh, and CO2 uh, uh, potential reductors um, uh, by the way that we work with the, the evidence-based uh, uh, policy making uh, in climate change. So thank you so much for this morning. Uh, I now handle over the floor again back to you, Dave, and I'm very uh, keen to hear also the input from the very, all the other speakers. Thank you so much. Oh, great. Thanks, Pernilla. Uh, Alessia, great to have you with us because this is so technical and you're really the expert. You can walk us through it. So tell us how modeling works and how it can help the legislative process, why it's so critical. Uh, and then let me know, do you think it's, it's working well as it's being done today? Good morning and thank you very much for inviting me here. Obviously, um, I could probably also spend two days answering your question, uh, as uh, modeling is uh, the key thing I, I do. And I will try now to just uh, do the two, three points, which are, I believe, essential for the discussion that we are having today. So first of all, it must obviously be clear that models are simulations of real world processes, and they have to have some simplification somewhere. This is the case with all models that exist, obviously. However, despite these simplified reflections of reality, they are always still uh, extremely useful. And uh, the aim of us as modelers is always to try to balance the detail requirements with the questions we get posed as, as modelers, with obviously more technical issues such as computational time without having uh, models which spend uh, hours and hours and days and weeks to, to provide uh, results. Um, what, in my opinion, the modeling or what we provide with the modeling is an analytical framework with which different options can be compared and analyzed, in particular when the interactions become complex. Um, models can therefore inform the policymakers about the possible impact of different techno-economic developments, of different policy choices, and as I was mentioning, they are particularly important when the interactions in and across sectors become more and more complex over time. The targets and the EU legislation is, in most of its nature, already cross-sectoral. It includes GHG emission reduction targets, which by default encompass the entire economy. It includes also REST and energy efficiency targets, which also by default cover multiple sectors, making it a rather complex interactions and obviously things like non-linearities, etc. turn up. Um, 
Then um, just um, a few uh, other elements, um, if I may. I mean, uh, the Primes model um, is a model which is being continuously developed um, and has been developed for the past 30 years, not for the last decade. It is a continuous work in progress in terms of modeling improvement, improvement of the data inputs in order to allow it to remain state of the art. And in this process, we do uh, do a lot of effort to work both with stakeholders on the one side, but also with many other research institutions in the context, for example, of Horizon projects, where we undertake also model comparisons, both of the inputs and of the output data, including participating to some parts of elements as the IPCC process. Thank you very much, and I look forward to a very interesting debate. Great, thanks. Let's go to Diana next. Diana, how do you assess the models being used today in EU policymaking? Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, generally, um, I want to start um, saying that I think really the purpose um, of models is exploration. So I think we really see that models enable decision makers really to explore potential energy futures and support to understand really strategies and trade-offs of the energy transition. So I think energy models, they have really a reason that they are there. And within um, my recent research project, Sentinel, we really investigated also this interaction between um, energy modeling and policymaking and the EU. And we found really there that models are used in policymaking and that two thirds of the models really have a direct or indirect policy impact. I think what is very interesting is that, um, yeah, some models um, are, are they are really used to support and inform also policymakers really along different stages um, of the policy cycle. And therefore, they can really support um, here also ambitious and climate energy policymaking. But I also want to add another component that actually also policymakers have really an influence um, on the modeling process, um, according to our research findings. And therefore, sometimes, um, yeah, modeling tools can be also used to actually steer towards um, predefined um, policy targets or agendas and justify already made um, policy decisions. And therefore, this has already, uh, of course, like then implications um, on the transparency um, of, of the modeling. And we can talk a little bit more about that um, yeah, in a bit. And I, I want to add one aspect um, about models. Um, I think it's important, as I said, that they are um, there, that they can provide uh, important input. But I think it's really essential that we, we, have, we are aware that they are not the only input. And I think they should not be, because models have a really techno-economic nature. And that's also the reason why they ne neglect really important social and political realities. And uh, yeah, I'm also happy to discuss um, in a bit more about that and also what we kind of maybe um, could do different and what we do already different um, within uh, my recent research project, um, Sentinel. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Uh, let's go to Robert next. So Robert, how does modeling impact, impact Kobize's actions when it comes to managing and administering EU law like the ETS in Poland? Yes, uh, thank you for the invitation and this great discussion. I think it's uh, more and more important that the modeling attitude for the decision-making uh, uh, process is, is a crucial one, especially that we are still 
uh, running very, very fast in line to decarbonize our economies and be in line with the net zero targets for 2050. So um, uh, with the, in the National Center for Emission Management, COBISA, uh, it's, COBISA is part of the Institute of Environmental Protection, National Research Institute. As, as such, we are dealing with the different issues concerning the environmental. Uh, of course, COBISA is strictly devoted to the um, greenhouse gases and the, uh, mo mostly for administration the emission trading schemes in Poland. Um, so as a national uh, uh, institute, we are responsible for the management of implementation of ETS in Poland, uh, like in, let's say preparing national implementation measures, monitoring and verification, preparation of reports related to the system, administration of part of your registry, auctioning, many, many others. Um, so in this respect, uh, we find out as well several years ago that uh, the information coming only from the impact assessment from the commissions are not sufficient to the, um, gives proper data for national governments to um to be assured that the results especially from the economic side are proper for the level of the national member states so in the in the structure of COBISA we uh, set up the center for climate and energy analysis called cake uh, which one of the main tasks is develop modeling tools to support the process of decision making and enhance the potential of knowledge and competence within the public administration just to uh, achieve the and be in line with the climate neutrality goals and uh, um, raising uh, environmental awareness of, of the society so we are preparing several models um, both uh, global cg modeling or sectoral modeling for transport uh, agriculture um, and uh, energy especially uh, so i think um, this is also case uh, um, I think we should also mention that uh, this researchers uh, uh, um, society and uh, a modeling society is also well know each other with, with, within the EU. So we also try to work out uh, the problem of, uh, as was said, the black box of primes. So uh, it's not the case of uh, primes to be a black box, but more than policy making and the European European Commission attitude to. The, to give some more detailed information from this several reasons. Um, but uh, there are several projects running around the Europe that also integrate this uh, community. Um, and we are also part of that, uh, working on the uh, better imp and improve the modeling uh, infrastructure and modeling uh, results coming to the decision makers. Thanks a lot. So next, let's go to Luke. So Luke, how is modeling affecting policy in the area of agriculture and rural communities? Morning to everybody. Thanks, thanks Dave, for, for your question. Um, models and agriculture, it's a, it's a long story. And these days and over the past weeks, I think we had a lot of discussions uh, uh, on models. So it's very interesting to have this, uh, this discussion this morning uh, related to primes and to the Fit for 55 package. Um, first, I, I, I want to say that because we have a political commission or a commission that says that it's, it is now a political body, a politics, it's on not only settings targets. It's also designing a path to get there. 
and make sure that we will achieve the targets. And when it comes to the decarbonization challenge, I think that the society wants uh, to succeed uh, uh, on this uh, on this challenge and to have it effective. So we really need uh, some models and some uh, assessments to make sure that we are on the on the right tracks. And models, indeed, they cannot say more than what they are designed for, but they can help in uh, in uh, showing us uh, a pathway. Um, so to to come back to our specific topics uh, of uh, energy uh, and biomass, uh, models already influenced a lot the policy makings over the last uh, decades. Uh, that's why we had a cap uh, on biomass in, in, in red already include we had a low high high look. So we, uh, we have today the policy framework we have has been a lot uh, influenced by models that were designed mainly for shocks and we should not take uh, these models for what they are not designed so they were designed for shocks in demand not for uh, uh, constant uh, evolution of demand so that's something i want um, to underline uh, and second these models should evolve with um, with the market agriculture uh, is a sector that is really fast developing it's a complex uh, environment uh, with uh, with market demand evolving and i i want to uh, to give you um, two examples uh, today the gm free uh, milk uh, rely a lot on the feeds that are produced in relation in correlation to biodiesel uh, the veggie burgers uh, today veggie burgers are really connected to the bioethanol that is produced. So these markets are, are connected and some energy is really connected to food. And we should see uh, these markets together uh, and, uh, and also uh, assess closely uh, the decision we are making in relation to, uh, to this uh, dimension. And last, as a, in my introduction, I wanted to mention as well the, the farm to fork because clearly uh, the vision we have of biomass uh, is uh, correlated between the farm to fork and the feed for 55 package. And we had a lot of debates this, uh, this last week, as I said, uh, on this. We can discuss uh, the, the farm to fork modeling that were put on the table. And uh, as Farm Europe, we did an assessment because these models, and in particular the GRC model, were very transparent. And we had this capacity to ding it to this model and to see what were the parameters and uh, uh, so we see in the five six models that has been done in the uh, in the farm to fork there is one converging clear message from these uh, models is that if we produce less biomass in europe we will not achieve uh, our climate ambition. On the contrary, we need more biomass to have more carbon stored at EU level. And I think that's a, that's a key element to be taken also in the Feed for 55 uh, package. Plants and photosynthesis, this is solar panels that we use uh, in, in, uh, in Europe at a large scale. And we should mobilize this uh, energy from, from the sun, transform it with photosynthesis and, and use it in Europe, in Europe in a sustainable way. Uh, and I think that's, uh, uh, that's something that should be uh, taken into account. And last, uh, B2 
because this is a complex environment, what is very important if we want to succeed is not to slice uh, the impact assessment and the models that we have. We need to have a, a coherent approach uh, of the various uh, policy decisions we, uh, we are making. Uh, the Fit for 55 package is, is, is a huge package. What is needed is not only to have the impact of specific regulation that are done, but if we want to make it effective and to design uh, the path I was mentioning, a path of success for the climate ambition, we need to have a comprehensive impact assessment of the various piece of legislation that were put on the table by the Commission, and then we will be in a position to, to, to see what is the what is best way forward. But uh, certainly, uh, we need to put biomass and to mobilize biomass in a way um, that it can contribute much more uh, to, uh, to what, uh, in comparison to what uh, was proposed uh, uh, at the moment. So that was my the few words I wanted to share uh, with you as a start. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Luke. Let's turn to Eric next. Eric, how does modeling affect your decisions, including investment decisions? Uh, thanks, Dave, and, and thanks to all my other panelists and to your active for today's event. I'm, I ju just wanted to say that I'm very heartened by the uh, my, my predecessors here because uh, I couldn't agree more with everything uh, that's been said, especially by the modelers themselves and by the one member state representative that, that we have. Um, so I think it's it's incredibly important to remember in this discussion that criticizing results of models isn't the same as criticizing <clears throat> the model, the underlying model itself, because models are, are, are just tools. Um, and the models that we use for investment decisions are just tools also. So we're a, we're a unique company in that we were created only as the result of the Renewable Energy Directive uh, being uh, adopted in 2008. And initially, all of our investments were based upon the logic of the Renewable Energy Directive and informed to the best possible way we could by uh, the best information that we could uh, we could gather about agriculture and about technology. And we have proceeded to invest on that basis. And quite objectively, we have really, uh, we've been very successful. However, over time, our objective success and our models have deviated increasingly from the information that the commission uses to assess biofuels. Um, and at the end of the day, that's good news. That's good news for us because we're successful, but it's also good news because this particular industry we're in, which at its, its DNA, it has been conventional biofuels, but it's expanded much beyond that. But, but this, this particular industry has been the engine of innovation, technological innovation in the biofuel sector over the past decade, in complete contrast to all of the horizon projects that the commission has funded, which have honestly gone nowhere. Uh, our industry has been cut off from all funding. All of our innovations have been self-produced, and they're, they're fairly amazing. So today's crop-based biorefineries in the EU have as little in common with those of 2005, which is really the, the moment in time that most commission modeling has been frozen, um, as uh, today's smartphones do with cell phones of 2005. So the innovations in our industry are simply stunning. 
And most importantly, these innovations are, are real. You can touch them. They're verifiable. And in case any of you listening today would like to tour our own uh, large biorefinery in Hungary, you're perfectly welcome to do so. Just contact me. Uh, we've also contacted uh, hundreds of commission officials over the past decade. Uh, not one single one has ever accepted the invitation, even though we're the we're the largest uh, biorefinery to be created under the Renewable Energy Directive. Uh, but what the E3 study that Farm Europe is releasing today shows is that ethanol, biodiesel, and biomethane not only represent pretty much all of the EU transport decarbonization that has been achieved in the past decade, uh, but they also represent the most cost-effective tools in the transport sector going forward, both for conventional and advanced biofuels. Market knows this because this is the real world, and we need policymakers to start basing their decisions on these realities rather than on data that's presented to them directly or through models that is just honestly fantastically incorrect, both structurally and, and quantitatively. Uh, so what our, what our industry has is it has a decade of success, and it also points to practicable 2030 outcomes that are more credible, more cost-effective, less risky, more climate-friendly, and radically more consistent with a just transition and much more in line with fundamental EU values than what's been suggested by the Commission's flawed management of the modeling behind Fit for 55. So that's great news for EU transport decarbonization for EU citizens. And for that reason, I recommend that everyone read the report that's being issued today by Farm Europe. Thanks a lot. So I want to, just for the, the sake of argument here, focus on uh, one particular area, which is transport. Alessia, could you tell us a bit about what modeling was used for the impact assessment covering the transport sector in the Fit for 55 package, and then how that impact assessment is then used to, to craft legislation? Yes, uh, I would be happy to do that. So um, the transport sector in the Fit for 55 um, has been to a large extent, obviously not exclusively, um, modeled through the primes to remove model, which is a specific transport sector model that operates within the primes framework. What I might want to add is, although the focus here, and I accept that obviously Primes is, and I'm very proud that Primes is uh, a huge part of the 55 project. Uh, I, I would not say that, to, that we have many, many colleagues working on many, many other models, which also obviously influence informing either Primes or directly informing policy in order for us to have obviously the best possible um, uh, outcome. Uh, so, indeed, a lot of the transport policy has been covered by the primes to remove model, coupled also with the biomass uh, model, which uh, tries to assess the, the economic and technical uh, aspects of, of the biomass supply from an energy perspective, obviously, because this is the focus of the work we do. When we go towards agriculture, we rely on the cooperation with other modeling tools, such as CAPRI, such as the bioforestry sector, and many other elements, obviously, because we are not the agricultural experts. Uh, it is also covered 
coupled together with, with detailed hydrogen and synthetic fuel model to understand how all the elements uh, are covered when we have the broader electric supply model. And um, in general, I mean, as I was mentioning, all the impact assessments are generally undertaken uh, in, in consortia, which try and cover as best as possible the different aspects which are required. So um, yes, definitely primes to remove and, and the primes model is certainly one of the, the key tools which was used and particularly in some of the impact assessments for transport, but is, is by far not the only one which has been used. I don't know if this is sufficient or if you would like me to say uh, even more. No, that's good. I think that's, that's very thorough. Pernilla, uh, let me put this to you then also. So uh, when we're talking about transport climate legislation specifically, how do you think that the modeling has worked there? <clears throat> Thank you for this specific uh, question. Um, I'm not a, a member of the transport committee, but also when I ask stakeholders, uh, in, in that uh, area, as goes for the example that I uh, made in my introduction on uh, related to energy efficiency um, on renewable energy, also in the transport sector, uh, they question uh, what is actually going on in the black box of, of, of uh, the very complex black box of primes regarding batteries and uh, the uh, the informations uh, that uh, gets uh, out of 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 of, of that uh, let me just have a look here um uh, that the cost of batteries uh, in the primes modeling uh, at the moment makes uh, the um, the uh, the costs look actually higher for electrification of of the transport sector, uh, so if, if anyone in the panel could uh, could update us on where the primes is now on reliable data regarding the cost of batteries, that could be very helpful um, because that is what I hear, uh, and that goes in line with also the other questions related more to 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 energy consumption and and the energy cost of transition and related to energy efficiency. Thank you. Great. Uh, Alessia, I see you have an answer to that. Yes, of course. So um, within the primes, um, I believe, uh, and I mean, in, in collaboration, obviously, with uh, the European Commission as the main client for this uh, work, uh, we actually regularly undertake stakeholder consultations, uh, the last of which was done at the end of 2019. Obviously, we are in a very, very dynamic world at the moment. But on the other hand, um, Pranil indeed mentioned the problem of comparability. And at some point, we obviously also need to put uh, a limit to where we um, where we uh, stop to, to a certain extent the, the updates in the model in order to ensure comparability between the scenarios, etc. So what is being done and has now been done uh, full scale, so to say, for the second time is to do a stakeholder consultation uh, with many, many industrial stakeholders. So I think in the last stakeholder consultation, there were over 100 invited stakeholders for the different sectors, many obviously being uh, across sectors, many being very specific for, for some sectors. Um, and um, in order to um, um, to, to have the best possible availability of data because we have obviously always 
given also our scientific background, uh, a bit to weigh off elements, because on the one hand, it would be wonderful to wait until there are peer-reviewed journals of everything, but then obviously we would fully disconnect from the real world, because obviously very often the peer review process is so long that by the time the, some of the processes are out, uh, the, the information might already be outdated. So what is done is that we do a stakeholder review process with uh, industrial stakeholders, and then together with the JRC, so with the Joint Research Centre of the European Commission, and obviously the relevant uh, sectoral units within the European Commission, we try and uh, decide on the best possible uh, uh, outcomes of the um, uh, of the technology of the uh, data available in order to use in this context. Um, on the other hand, what must also be said, I mean, what is really important is always to have the comparability between the scenarios. So, so as to say that once one has decided on the different um, elements, um, then there is comparability across scenarios because these don't change a lot and this allows us this analytical framework. It must also be remembered, obviously, that we are doing modeling projections which allow to uh, check uh, or to, to analyze different policy options or different techno-economic assumptions, if this is the kind of analysis one wants to do, um, in a consistent framework. Um, we do not do forecasting. Uh, we, we, we don't do forecasting. This is a completely different uh, aspect uh, of analysis. Uh, and uh, we don't have uh, crystal balls, unfortunately. It would be very nice to have at some point, but uh, that doesn't work. So I think uh, this is the process that is being used to update the data, which allows us to be as close as possible to real-world developments. Now, you imagine every modeler's dream would be to have a crystal ball. That would be a great tool. Um, Diana, let me put this question to you. When we're looking at kind of the case study of transport, um, how would you assess how modeling has worked there for transport climate proposals? Yeah, thanks a lot. I think, uh, yeah, I think there are specific challenges really when it comes to the modeling and the transport sector. Um, I mean, I mentioned already the issue that, um, yeah, most of the models are really techno-economic in nature and that they are not very good in representing the social and political realities. And I think there's specifically an issue in the transport sector. I mean, because there are a lot of uncertainty when it comes to people's demand changes, acceptance of new technologies like electric vehicles, um, changes in the modes of transport, and actually also like all the policies always talk about actually enabling um, somehow this change. So the question is, how can we actually do it? And um, I'm not a transport expert, I have to say, but I had a look also to the impact assessment and I saw some like observations there. I mean, like, for example, the issue is that um, we still see that the greenhouse gas emissions in the transport sector are rising. I mean, there has now been some stagnation with COVID, but nevertheless, but I mean, in the primes model, we really see or there is um, an all the scenarios actually these emissions are declining so I mean the challenge is really how do we get there right and then we have like the big targets um, set um, in the framework of the Fit for 55 to really cut emissions specifically by cars and also vents by 50-55% and the main coin is also here put on electrification um, in the transport sector and when we look what are the targets that are kind of assumed there where do we get there um, to 2030 then we talk about 20-25% but the reality is we are stagnated at 1%, uh, if I'm not totally mistaken, but we are really far away um, to reach this target, which just basically highlights there is a lot that needs to be done 
right, in order to really meet the targets um, that are put into the models and in the end also, um, yeah, get, give uh, guidance also to specific policymakers where we should go. Um, other issues are not addressed at all or just a little bit like um, technology and model shift, um, which is more like looking into this efficiency perspective. And of course, beyond that, there are a lot of other dynamics. Um, um, Panil was just talking about technological learning, um, which is uh, generally really an issue in many models, um, which is really hard um, to um, yeah, get good numbers for, right? Like how will the prices um, actually change? And we know from the past also, when we look from to renewable energy, that we often got it really wrong, right? We assumed often like the wrong um, prices for technologies and then the prices for solar PV, for example, declined much faster um, than ever expected. So these are like really challenges here I see in the transport sector. And also because we have a lot of people looking into bioenergy, this is actually also a really interesting case because um, there are also a lot of concerns um, often by environmental NGOs when it comes to unsustainable use of biofuels in the transport sector. And we also see like different issues of acceptance with um, yeah, bioenergy also across the EU. So I think there are a lot of challenges that need to be resolved um, in the transport sector. Um, and I think modelers are trying hard. So for my work with a lot of like teams within the Sentinel project, we really try to better understand these different dynamics, to better understand how demands have in the past developed, to really rely more on um, what we observed um, in the past and to make maybe also some better assumptions, um, what are specific um, yeah, developments, specific narratives that could maybe drive the future development. Um, but we don't know, so that's the kind of thing, um, yeah, really an issue that different uncertainties here inherent in like behavioral and social aspects as well. Thanks. Uh, Eric, you wanted to come in on this as well? Yeah, I, I just wanted to respond to something that uh, Alessia said. Um, because I, I, you know, it's it's correct that the commission does try to uh, improve its data set and assumptions for primes, but unfortunately, that's not done on a on an accountable basis. So, for example, in we're talking about transport now. All all of transport decarbonization in the past decade came from uh, ethanol and biodiesel, and and to a much smaller degree from biomethane. And there hasn't been a single consultation that has involved an actual stakeholder from those industries in the past decade. It's a it's a, a unfortunate uh, sleight of hand that the commission does that it can always find someone willing to say that they represent the ethanol industry or biofuels in general, but those people aren't credibly representing an industry that produces tens of billions of liters of fuel. So often they'll trot someone out who produces a million liters, which is an irrelevance in, in the sector. So what that has specifically done in our sector is uh, we, have, uh, we have this issue more probably than any other technology in transport where energy modeling is just not, it, it, it doesn't work for a sector. So less than half of what we produce is sold into energy markets. So a modeling system that assumes that, okay, we take all of your costs and we put them on your energy products and assume that you throw everything away is incredibly misleading. And it's also a direct contradiction of the Renewable Energy Directive and Annex 5 of the Renewable Energy Directive. And then further, the Prime's model assumptions that the Commission uses are that biomass can't be traded across borders. 
which is a fundamental betrayal of the treaty and creating a common market, it also causes biomass costs to go way up and so misrepresent bioenergy. So it, it would be great if that consultation process uh, included some basic accountability. Uh, Luke, you also wanted to come in on this. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I wanted to, to, to add to that and in relation to what was said uh, before and uh, reflecting my uh, introduction as well, that we put it online uh, a report as uh, uh, yesterday, uh, as mentioned by, uh, by Eric. And that's very interesting because it shows that when you update uh, the models with actual figures on what is the reality of the market today the the results are quite clear because we have these days a debate on the cost effectiveness of the transition on the social acceptance its capacity to uh, to uh, to be available for all and clearly the modeling that is online now on uh, uh, on our website is very clear that biomass mobilized in a sustainable way uh, on uh, the EU market is really an affordable solution. It's actually the, uh, the best uh, uh, economic uh, option uh, actually available, mobilized today, not in 10 years' time. Today we have, uh, we have this option uh, available. So uh, this, uh, this study, this updated study should clearly be taken into account. Uh, taking also into account what I mentioned in terms of food and supply chain, for example, uh, G, uh, GM-free milk, uh, proteins, uh, uh, veggie burgers, and so on. So market, uh, food markets are developing very fast. Uh, and the, va uh, the value of the different components on the market as well and the demand of the people uh, is, is evolving. So we should really take this into account and, uh, and make sure that the decisions that are made and that will be made, which will, which will frame uh, the, uh, the, uh, the legal environment for the next uh, five to ten years, should take uh, really uh, be grassrooted in the reality today, not ten years past. Thanks. So, Pranil, I think you wanted to respond to something Eric said. Is that right? Thank you so much. Yeah, um, I have uh, one question and, and also one promise, uh, because it, it might uh, sound a bit like I'm a very uh, critic uh, towards uh, 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 primes and, 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 and the commission. Uh, and I always try to be f fair and, and also transparent in where where do I, how do I see uh, the complexity and what are the prisms uh, uh, that I address? Um, so I would like to ask and I would like to suggest something uh, on a more constructive uh, way. Uh, also because I have to leave this uh, panel uh, soon. So also I would like to uh, um, use this opportunity to say thank you for inviting me, but also to, uh, to highlight that whoever would like to continue conversation with me on this very important topic, not only related to transport and, and also 
related to energy efficiency, but for the whole of a uh, package of uh, Fit for Fit 55, and the, hopefully the uh, the the um, result of a, 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 a reliable and evidence-based way of doing uh, politics, although politics is not cannot be uh, reduced uh, to to science. So to my question. Um, is it possible for, for primes, because that's also what I hear from stakeholders working more closely with the data and the analysis coming from primes, that instead of this high level of complexity in this kind of black box, that uh, a kind of simplification and prioritization is done so that uh, uh, some of the functionalities is actually um, taken away in order to focus on the most relevant uh, parameters when modeling and also by that uh, making the model and the black box less uh, less black uh, more transparent that's my question to the technologies of primes but also i would like to to uh, to announce and, and to, to suggest now that we don't have anyone from the commission in, in this panel uh, i would like to hear the panelists uh, uh, um, uh, comments to uh, what we could ask the Commission to do, namely to uh, be inspired by the member states who has uh, uh, technology catalogs. Uh, EU doesn't have, the Commission doesn't have, uh, to my knowledge, uh, an actual technology catalog so that the uh, the um, uh, the basic uh, assumptions uh, for the uh, accounting and the analysis are more uh, public uh, available and can be addressed in a kind of a meta level uh, discussion on methodology. Maybe that could be helpful that EU, as some member states already have and have good use of, namely to have technology uh, catalogs uh, to work with when also introducing and, and uh, uh, incorporating different analysis uh, mechanisms and technologies and putting them together in this very complex system of by the end of the day by 2050 uh, realizing that what we did in these years right now actually put us to climate neutrality uh, with uh, in a very uh, uh, optimum uh, sustainable way to do. Thank you for letting me uh, have the floor just for the third uh, last time and I stay, still stay in the panel but uh, I leave very soon and I wish everybody a wonderful day and thank you Reactive for taking up this very very important topic. Uh, please continue the good work on that. Thanks Pernil and thanks for joining us today and I think that's a good segue to the next topic I wanted to talk about which is transparency. So Alessia maybe I could get you to respond to the question that Pernil just posed and also maybe speak just more generally to the transparency in how Primes is being used. Um, do you think there's room for more transparency there? There is always room for more transparency to reply that very uh, simply probably. Um, uh, to reply very concretely uh, to Pranilla, uh, there is actually um, the, uh, the stakeholder consultation takes place on the one side with industrial stakeholders and, and the other side with the member state experts. Um, and the member state experts in this um, exchange has been happening over uh, now quite a long time. Uh, they also receive all the um, techno-economic assumptions prior to the modeling and uh, are able to comment. And we have in many occasions obviously used, uh, had um, uh, member states using their own national experts, obviously, to um, allow 
the um, to allow to have you know, but it's not obviously all the people in ministries have all the all the information they require, and they also have their own studies which uh, inform us. So generally speaking, the member states have a lot of access to the information, and the national ministries do uh, feed it back into the. Um, uh, the, the the process uh, on the issue of complexity um, I, I, there's always it, it, it's a very uh, challenging issue let me put it like this uh, because um, the questions that we are being asked uh, by the European Commission as well as by other clients because we also work for example also for national governments as well as for company are actually becoming exceedingly complex and these always require um, a lot uh, a lot of um, replies a, a lot of detailed modeling we are rather asked to add to the model rather than to take out from the model in many uh, occasions uh, and um, on the other hand there are some tools which use our results to make some um, to, show, to show some graphs uh, based on the results one has been recently prepared by the JLC uh, in order to show uh, simple elements so I believe the member states are very much involved in the process uh, on the one side in general on transparency I would say uh, we do have these extensive public consultations the uh, database now of the techno-economic assumptions of crimes is made public at uh, more or less regular inter intervals um, and uh, we also have uh, regular interactions through uh, internet-based uh, portals uh, with uh, the um, with with uh, both member states experts as well as other stakeholders, where we uh, systematically respond to questions which are posed, um, and uh, this through a, a, a special website with accredited users, etc. Uh, so I believe we have been moving, and um, I have now been working on crimes for quite a while, and I have been in many, many, for example, member state consultations, uh, and over the years, I believe we have done a huge amount of effort to improve the transparency, obviously in collaboration partly with the European Commission, uh, partly for uh, for ourselves obviously. We regularly publish in peer-reviewed journals, uh, we regularly participate and uh, I believe in a new project we are actually uh, together with Robert in a project called ECMF um, which uh, will allow us to, to improve both on our side and uh, obviously uh, all the other participants to allow for this uh, comparison of model results. So I believe there is uh, uh, lots of things going on. Uh, obviously, we could certainly benefit from things like uh, making an even better model documentation, etc. These things obviously also take huge amounts of time to improve. Uh, and uh, and uh, so I believe we're, we're getting there uh, with more and more transparency over time. Thanks, Robert. Uh, let's go to you next. I know you wanted to come in on this as well. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I just wanted to mention this project that we are uh, all in <clears throat> because it's. Uh, I think it's also important to know that uh, Horizon 2000 is also pro um, financing from the European Commission that's going in the right direction to bringing uh, bringing the bridges. Uh, within this complex complexity of modeling uh, toolbox. And I think that uh, it's going different way this Brazil uh, would like to. I mean, we understand uh, all that this is so complex and there are so in many interactions between the sectors, um, the policies and the proposals or measures that we want to implement to deliver the net zero. 
um, that the message should be simple. But the, the more complex it is, the more data you need and the more granularity of data you, you need. And I think the more, the most, um, uh, the, the, the biggest problem at the moment with the, let's say, official primes results that are presented by the Commission on the, on the impact assessments is that the, the granularity is uh, quite high, I mean low, so the, you're, you don't have uh, enough data to compare some uh, results with the, with the modeling that uh, is in impact assessment. So the other issue is that um, like for instance, we, you don't have the in transport sector. You don't have the fuel fleet structure or age structure of vehicles, which is quite comp important to the to analyze the um, the behavior of of the society and the implementation of the electrification, for instance, or use other fuels in in transport or heavy duty transport, where the biofuels are quite important in long term. Um, so, but the other thing is, I think we are very speeding up with the, the policy and the fit for 50 package is a great example of that. So it's, a, it's you, you cannot compare it with the other uh, in, in initiative from the commission side or the governments. Um, and we have a quite long period between the publication of Prime's results. So we currently have a Prime's reference scenario for 2020. And uh, previously we had uh, 2016. And the uh, other thing that we also find, which is quite uh, from the, let's say, decision-making process, uh, we, what we observe in the decision-making process in, in government is that we have, uh, uh, of course, what was what said, the, the primes, uh, there is a special group uh, for um, for consulting the, the reference scenario. This is national expert group uh, within the commission from the government. Uh, expert <clears throat> but for another side you have the prime surface scenario which is and within the fit for 50 package the um uh, time framework is up to 2030 so we don't see the future development of, of the technology's impact or or development of of different sectors and and what the emission will um behave after 2030 and i think when we have a fit for 55. Of course, it's up to 2030, but we, we should not forget that this is a first step to deliver net zero. So it's a part of the first step of uh, 2000 of, of uh, um, the living net zero and the Green Deal uh, package, uh, as we can say. So I think the necessity for more complex and uh, more long term uh, view within modeling. Uh, uh, um, site is very needed. So that's why also the pro, um, the projects we are all in should also deliver some kind of understanding and the exchange of data on attitude on the comparing the, the results and uh, understand what is uh, behind these results. And I think it's uh, it's a very good project. So um, thank you, Eric. What do you think on this question of transparency? Do, do, do you think that the modeling is transparent enough? Uh, no, no. So we're actively we're 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 literate in, in modeling and we're um, uh, very aware of our industry. Not not because we only have private information, but actually the ethanol industry every year publishes uh, an incredible set of audited figures. There's a forensic accountant. It comes in voluntarily 
invited by the industry to provide uh, to provide figures. So, um, and this has been going on for quite a while. And then those figures are just ignored. Um, so, no, there isn't. It's it would be one thing if we were saying, hey, we produce, you know, methanol from straw and no one's paying attention to us but the crop-based biofuel industry produces effectively all of the biofuels that are used in have been used in europe over the past decade not not just conventional but also at advanced and that there hasn't been a single effort to consult with that actual industry i think tor torpedoes the whole transparency argument Thanks a lot. Diana, you wanted to come in on this transparency issue as well, I believe. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's kind of really at the core um, of what we do with our Sentinel modelers um, and yeah, our recent project. So I think it's really time that we open up this mysterious um, black boxes. And I think there are three key reasons. Like, first of all, I really believe that transparency is really um, the key for making models actually really relevant to policymakers. Because if you don't know what they actually do, like really specifically, then you don't really know what the results actually mean in terms of um, policy options. And that's what we hear a lot from the different member states and the stakeholders we are actually um, working um, with. And then, of course, transparency is second, uh, really important, um, yeah, in terms of model assumptions, data, and also the process in order to create really trust um, in this model. So trust is always a big term that all the time comes also up with the different stakeholders. So I think it's really essential um, also to have transparency for the trust in the models and the credibility also um, of the different results that are arrived um, at these models. So um, that's really something, um, yeah, that comes like really this legitimacy also to make it more useful tools for um, policy advice. And third, what we also see all the time is the different um, stakeholders actually want to be involved in the modeling process. So not only like the policymakers, but also the industry side, as we hear today, um, but also the different NGOs. So they are actually really interested in better understanding um, this modeling tools. So it's really important to be also transparent here in order to um, yeah, be inclusive, in order to understand also what are the research questions of the different stakeholders, what is the context um, they are working with? What are specific challenges they actually would like to see um, addressed in the models? And uh, what we also suggested here within the Sentinel project is maybe to have more a simplified, a so-called maybe toy tool, which we would allow policymakers actually to play around with the model. I mean, we hear it a lot, of course, um, Alessia, you're totally right. Models are really complex. And although like there are a lot of simplifications, but still you cannot give the model to the stakeholders and say, oh, you can play around with it but maybe there is a way to build like kind of smaller um, toy tools that are actually really accessible um, to different um, stakeholders and yeah generally i think there are a lot of great models out there that are already open like there is a big open modeling community where i think um, yeah like different other modelers that are still working with largely closed models can really learn from um, exchange and really allow here for greater um, transparency um, in the modeling Thank you. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Diana. And I'll put that to Alessia. So how do we strike the balance here between uh, you know, lessening the black box effect, having more transparency, but also obviously not handing over the modeling to the policymakers to play around with, as Diana said, which obviously wouldn't be a good idea? Um, well, in principle, we, we try our best. I mean, 
to, to try and deal with all these elements. So we actually have been um, uh, developing a small model called ESDS, which uh, tries to do exactly this. It has also been developed within um, an H2020 project. Um, and uh, it is called ESDS, and uh, one can ask for credentials to uh, access it. And it is the attempt to have a simple primes uh, included there, um, uh, which does a small simulation of, of, um, of uh, the energy system. And it is an online tool which uh, is actually available. Uh, so we do try to, to assess also these needs uh, to a certain extent. Um, and um, I just wanted to quickly reply to, to um, a comment which I think was uh, by Robert on the age structure. So just to clarify, uh, primes, uh, as uh, most of us in primes are actually engineers, uh, we do <laughs> think that it is very important to have the age structure, and we do have it, particularly in transport. We have the full age structure of the vehicle stocks, uh, which are included in primes, and also scrapping functions, which may obviously diverge uh, by member state, because as we very well know, the average age of a car in uh, Germany is very different from the average age of a car in, uh, for example, Bulgaria, where also elements such as the second-hand car market play a, a very large role. So we do try as much as possible to reflect all these things, Obviously, we do simulate reality. We can't reproduce exactly reality. Um, but we do try as much as possible to take also all these member state peculiarities into uh, account. Uh, the um, issue on, on, on providing results, obviously, it will always be the client who decides which results are actually available. But um, we have been doing also projects for the Polish government, so maybe you can ask there instead. <laughs> Um, so, Luke, you wanted to come in on this issue of transparency as well. Yes, very, uh, very shortly, uh, I wanted to, uh, uh, to provide an example on how important transparency is, because when you have access to, uh, the, to really uh, the parameters, then you can better understand the, uh, the ideas behind. And we had, I mentioned it, we had the GRC on the farm to fork strategy, and we had this possibility to go deeper and dive into the parameters. And then we, we saw how some parameters were used to go in, in uh, one direction. Uh, and and that's, that was very interesting, and that's, I think, on this kind of, uh, uh, of model we need to have a fair, honest uh, discussion. That's very important in order to, to take the, the good decision. And I, for example, uh, on the farm to fork, which is not the core of our topic uh, today, but, but still that's important because it's the biomass uh, challenge uh, uh, as a whole. When we dive into the, the GRC modeling, we see that the price of um, pesticide was lowered uh, a lot lower than not in relation to markets. So the, the impact on the farmers was a lot mitigated. We saw as well that, that the cost on, of uh, precision farming was not at all related to, uh, to the reality of the market today. And the, uh, as a result, the precision farming dissemination in the farming sector was really high. 60% of farms uh, would have uh, in the GRC modeling for the farm to fork precision farming. That would be great. But uh, 
I have doubts that it's realistic. So uh, that, that's not the object of our debate, but I, uh, I think these elements, these concrete examples show how important it is, because when you change small parameters, when it comes to agriculture, to biomass, it has a big impact uh, on the result. So when you want to design sound policies, when you want to give the fair share to biomass in in a political environment, you need to to be transparent on your uh, on your assessment and uh, and show honesty as well behind the uh, behind the models. Okay, let's go to some questions from the audience now. Um, so, Diane, I have a first question for you here. Uh, sorry, I have to find it again. Um, nope, I lost it. Uh, okay, so this question comes from Rob Ferhut. What is the purpose of using models if we, by definition, cannot predict the future? COVID is a case in point. It has put the world upside down. Models have only limited value. Should we do an assessment to test how reliable the Prime's model has been? So, Diana, in an unpredictable world, is there ever a point in modeling? Yes, I think Alessia has made already the point that um, models are not there for forecasting. And I can say again, like modeling for me is really a tool for exploration. So um, I think there generally there is a large agreement that our future is decarbonized, right? Our future energy system will be like, um, yeah, um, zero carbon. And the question is, what, how do we get there, right? Um, and a lot of modeling has been used first to define targets, but now I think modeling becomes more and more relevant and actually guiding the way, getting us actually to um, the specific targets. And that's something where models um, yeah, are not necessarily so good yet um, and where maybe a lot of model improvements um, are also made. And another issue is also like dealing with more specific contexts. I mean, we heard it already, like the specific member states, they start at specific transition points, they have specific contexts and challenges, and we really need to account for them. And therefore, I think it's rather better to have like smaller tools that are available to answer more to specific research questions, to deal with more, um, yeah, um, smaller scales, smaller time scales, um, geographical scales, in order to really support um, the different decision makers here um, in, in the energy transition. But generally, yes, models, I think they, they, they can have in value, they can add in value. But um, yeah, often it stays and falls also to what extent they are adaptable, right, to the different um, contexts. And I think, yeah, we know Primes is rather a big modeling tool. We described it's largely like a black box. So I think there are some issues here where um, I guess some improvements could be made in order opening up and um, supporting more specifically also specific member states in the transition here. But there is a big modeling community that uh, uses and different member states use different other tools already um, in the member states. Um, but we often hear also that maybe tools are not available or there's only one tool. So I think um, decision makers get also more and more critical um, about diversities of tools that would need to be um, available to, and are accessible to them um, in really order to support um, their energy transition. I hope that answers the question somehow-ish. <laughs> so. Yes, for sure. Um, Alessia, we've had a couple of questions come in for you, so I'm going to ask you them all at once. 
Uh, well, I'm just going to put two to you now. So uh, this question comes from Mauro Bar Baronti from the Impact Assessment Institute. Uh, would you agree that the European Commission often uses prime, the PRIMES model without properly acknowledging the uncertainties behind the results and how they would be very different if other inputs into the black box were provided? Uh, second question for Mauro. Uh, nope, that's the same question. Uh, so then another question, this is from Flori Gonsolin from Suffolk. Primes does not capture individual sectors or countries' spe specificity as it is economy and EU-wide. How do we make sure that some sectors and countries don't get sacrificed to reach the global optimum? So uh, Alessia, those two questions for you. Okay. I'll start with the last question first. So, uh, indeed, the problem that often we uh, only EU results published does give the impression that uh, the model is EU-wide. This is wrong. The model is at the level of member states. It is uh, additionally all um, um, uh, for each member state in in the EU, as well as now the energy community, contracting parties, etc. Each country is modelled individually. We do take into account as much as possible so interactions between countries, which are obviously particularly important for hydrogen, for biomass, as we heard, in, increasingly for, for hydrogen in the future and, and for other trade uh, elements. But each model. Further, the other element is obviously that we do have many sectors, so PRIMES is fully modular. It is not one, um, one model which does a linear or non-linear optimization of the entire system. It is uh, each, and this is what I was mentioning initially of the transport sector, it is each sector is modeled as an individual module which can theoretically uh, run also independently and is can theoretically also replaceable when we make improvements to the model. Um, and uh, even also, uh, I believe uh, this person was from Cefix, so from, from, from the chemical industry. Uh, the chemical industry is uh, modeled individually and also with many subsectors. So altogether, I think uh, we now have, which for an energy system model is a very high resolution. So we have 11 uh, sectors, which are the sectors of, uh, of Eurostat, uh, split into 31 subsectors then up to 230 different uses for the industry. And here again comes the, the, the issue of the complexity versus the, uh, versus the individuality, obviously, which needs to be taken into account. And what our attempt is, and obviously we're always talking simulation, etc. Um, there is uh, obviously uh, the issue that we do try to capture the individuality, for example, that some certain elements in the chemical industry or in other sectors can be electrified, others cannot, uh, etc. These are individualities which we do try to take as much as possible into account in our modeling, and I believe we're relatively successful, but obviously um, one can have obviously diverging opinions on this. Uh, so I, I believe we do try our best and that for an energy system model we do have uh, extreme details. Obviously there is, and this is also what Diana was saying before, there are obviously scopes to use for specific sectoral areas, specific very sectoral uh, models, which can be very, very useful to answer very, very specific questions. 
But obviously, the problem that we then have, and which is essential, obviously, also for the, for the biomass model, and where we, for example, cooperate with other models, because we are no agricultural specialists, uh, and, and we rely on the collaboration with other modelers who are agricultural specialists in order then to get the parameters that we need for our modeling as precise as possible, taking into account the interactions with the agricultural sector, for example. Um, and uh, it is always a problem when you go very sectoral, you risk miss missing to a certain extent some of the aspects which do need the, the sectoral collaboration and it is actually always um yeah it depends really on the policy question or, or or the aspect that you're trying to analyze which model is the best and obviously it is always essential to try and uh, see and adapt which is the best model to answer a specific question analysis etc etc on the issue of uncertainties um, I think this is obviously um, uh, also something very different. Generally, um, politicians or policymakers at all levels really like black and white answers. Uh, we all know that the world is um, many, many, many shades of grey. Um, and uh, therefore, obviously, there are parameters which uh, have more influence or parameters which have less influence. And for example, exactly in the study that Eric was mentioned, we did find that, for example, while obviously there are some elements of the techno-economic characteristics which could be improved in the model and which do have an influence on the results, on the other side, obviously, the policy um, constraints which are put into the model because they are the existing influence, uh, implementing policies have just, if, uh, just as large, if not even a larger uh, influence on the results. So there are all these elements which uh, need to be always balanced out. And I believe obviously that, uh, obviously perhaps not answer all the questions, that uh, uh, we do not have at all this, uh, uh, this aspiration to answer everything. We try to answer the questions that are asked to us uh, in the elements in the domain of energy, and then there are other models on other domains. But, uh, and uh, I think this is the, uh, the elements there. Does anyone else want to come in on this issue of um, predictability? The issue of predictability. Uh, was it for me still? Uh, no, I was thinking if anyone else wanted to come in. But I mean, I think I think you addressed the question of predictability. Maybe Eric, do you want to also address this? Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. So um, uh, we actually have that information now. So in uh, we just finished our 2020 policy period, which was based upon model predictions. Now, the modelers would say, hey, we weren't predicting, we were just modeling. And that's an absolutely fair point. But that's not how the policymakers were presented with the information. It was presented as this is how the world will evolve. And that 2020 modeling was very interesting in our sector specifically because it was based upon a narrative, all models at the end are narratives. And, and that narrative is that the uh, advanced biofuels would decrease in cost tremendously. They would in every way be the preferred market alternative because they'd be cheaper and better. Uh, food prices would continue to go up. So all of those predictions turned out to be 100% wrong, not because it's 20 instead of 10, but because the trends went in the opposite direction of what the model said. So food prices went down. Conventional biofuels prices went down. Nothing really happened in advanced biofuels other than, than biomethane, which wasn't even really modeled. Cellulosic ethanol, pyrolysis, all these things which were supposed to be thriving in 2020, were just technologically they didn't advance like the model, like the model said. 
So these are all important points that we should be taking into the 2030 period. And instead, we're taking 2010 assumptions, not revising them, and continuing to use them to go to 2030 and 2050, which is, of course, a, a recipe for disaster. Um, so we had Robert wanted to come in next. <clears throat> yes. Um, just uh, to this predictability, um, I think the main issue, and I think we should <clears throat> focus on that, is that the the world is changing in daily basis, right? So the modeling the commission is using, and we are using just to pre maybe not predict, but <clears throat> to see uh, in which direction we should go to to reach the policy um, uh, targets is. Uh, to analyze the, the the interaction as much uh, many uh, sectors and um, as much many policies that we are can include in input into the modeling uh, uh, toolbox as as we can, and uh, the problem is that this evolves very fast. That so that gives us um, a necessity to be in with the model and support in daily basis and i think the predictability from the european commission side um which is presented in impact assessments is quite uh showing that we are not uh, going uh, uh, fast enough with the with the uh, what is world delivering to us and we if you see um the impact assessment of fit for 55 you can see that even price of co2 evolution uh, in ets is um, is giving some bizarre information for the policymakers so it's very difficult to to explain to the policy the, the decision makers that in the impact assessment we are predicting the price of co2 in 2030 at the level of 65 euros and at the same time we are reaching the uh, 90 over 90 uh, euros per ton uh, on, on the on the auctioning, so this gives the um, very pressure for the policymakers that it's going in the wrong direction or something's going wrongly. And I think for our side, as a modeling or uh, um, analytical uh, uh, network, is to explain as much possible and deliver uh, as much uh, concrete information for the policymakers. And this is very difficult and as uh, uh, alessia said the this uh, simplifying toolbox where uh, decision makers or analytics in the ministers can play as, as much as they can it's very also crucial to to explain much more detailed complexity uh, of the modeling uh, as it is thanks luke you wanted to come in on this as well Yes, please, uh, because on uh, related to predictability, there is an element which is very important for the agricultural sector is that it's uh, uh, they are global models, but uh, agriculture at the end of the day is also driven by uh, a very, very different reality from one place to the others. So it's, it's very important uh, in order to make sense for the agricultural sector, for the biomass, uh, uh, to, to also take into account uh, our specificities as EU uh, uh, and the reality of the agricultural sector in the European Union, the policy framework is very, very different from what we have uh, outside Europe. Uh, and we should be able, 
in the Fit for 55 package, uh, in our mobilization of the biomass for the energy sector to grasp the reality of the sector at EU level uh, in order to, to mobilize this sector in a very sustainable way. Uh, and if we want to be predictable, if we want the decision-making process at EU level to make sense for the farmers, for the farming community in Europe, we need to have this capacity from the models to grasp the reality of the EU agriculture and of the policy frameworks that exist at EU level. It's very challenging, but this exercise should be done if we want to make a sound decision uh, on, in this package. Great. So we have time for one more question before we wrap up. This question will be another one for Alessia. This question comes from Zoltan Shabo. Uh, the impact assessment for the Green Deal says very little about the cost of transport decarbonization, despite the importance of the cost of policy measures. Should this practice change? What about using carbon abatement cost as a necessary metric? Um, I mean, the choice of metrics is not something that um, that. that finally depends on us. It is an option. It is also a very complex option because of the issue of what to include in that cost, uh, in particular for transport. Um, there, is a, there are many challenges when costing transport because uh, you do not buy a car because of its energy-related aspects, but you buy a car because you need to move. Uh, and the question is, what then is the energy-related component of that cost, or how do you cost it in terms of, of modeling, etc.? So there are um, uh, many elements there, and I, I don't believe that the carbon cost uh, metric can be probably the only one to be used in, in such an uh, aspect. So it, it can obviously be used alongside many, uh, many other um, elements, but then the question is also if you include the infrastructure in this metric, it's, it's a rather complex metric to, to define, but obviously it can be used as, as, as many others and then we'll have lots of footnotes on how to define it. Um, did I miss anything else of the question? Um, nope, I think that covers it. Great. Well, yeah. thank you very much, Alessia, and thank you to all of our panelists for uh, having some great insights there. I think this is a really uh, important conversation to have, uh, and so I think we, I, I certainly got some insights into how everything's working uh, and, and how the whole process works. It is complicated, as, as has been said uh, many times, but it is so important to how we craft our EU legislation at the end of the day. So thank you so much to all the panelists. Thank you for you at home for spending your morning with us and asking some great questions. I encourage you all to continue the conversation going forward, uh, especially as we go forward uh, in looking at all the various components of the Fit for 55 legislative package. So I wish you all a great afternoon, and we'll see you here next time for the next Your Active Debate. Take care.